Good morning, everybody. It's good to be in the house of the Lord and see your smiling faces. Is rain here? Oh, there you are. Happy birthday. Sweet 16, right? Driver's license. Your dad bought you BMW in honor of your birthday. <laughs> okay. Um, if you don't know Rain, she's a real sweet young lady with a good singing voice and a great smile. Some announcements. Uh, men's. Well, another an announcement. <laughs> we, we had the privilege of seeing the nuns out in Colorado. It was, it was a blast, and it was worth driving across Kansas to get back here. And, uh, never worry about your kids making noise. It, it, it does two things. One, it, it shows that this is a church that is alive and growing. And I say it a lot, but we truly are an incubator for the next generation. And that's a holy responsibility we have. And another benefit of kids crying is it keeps the rest of us awake during pastor's sermons. So we need all the help we can get, right? Uh, men's Bible studies meeting at 6 a.m. You will not see me there. I'm not sanctified yet, even though I was up at 5.30 this morning. And ladies' Bible study, you can see when it meets. It's in the bulletin. Moms and dads and kids who can sing. We have youth choir in the apartment building right after church, so make your way there. And uh, everybody else, come prepared next week to hear the kids, the youth, they're not kids, youth, sing. And two more announcements that deal with our brother Nathan. Um, he's going to Scotland on mission trip. You'll be here next week? No? Okay, he's gone. But if you want to help support him, the church is supporting him, but you can, uh, in the offering box in the back, leave a, a gift designated for him. You can put it in an envelope or somehow make known that it's, it's for him. And on a totally separate topic, because he's such a sweet guy and wanted to thank us, he put some nuts together in there on the table back there, I think it looks like it. And there are two kinds of nuts. There's normal nuts and spicy nuts. And the spicy nuts have an S on them. So be forewarned, you people that do not like spices. And last announcement, you need, you're going to need a song sheet for one of the last songs, almost the last song. And if you don't have that, raise your hand and I will get you a copy. Thank you, Andy. If you look at your worship folder as we begin, I, I put a note here, a call for humility. And on the front, kind of explain what I mean by that. Uh, something that has really just been on my mind of late, and of course, two weeks ago we had communion to focus on that, and then our uh, our mission 
moment last week, so I thought I would bring this up once again. I, I published this Second Chronicles 7.14 uh, for the Sunday in, in May. We have a day for Memorial, Memorial Day, that we just celebrated. We have a day to remember D-Day, December 6th. We, we have various days within our culture to think about things. Father's Day is next week, just FYI. And <laughs> but our culture, for some reason, has determined to make this whole month in June about pride. And you know what they mean by that. How do we respond? And how do we deal with this? We know what pride is definitionally. It's an inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. What's happening in our culture is not just attempting to tolerate or accept other people. We certainly we should because all of humanity is made in the image of God. We need to think about people that way regardless of whatever their situation is. Even if they're our enemy in their ideas and ideology, uh, even in their actions, I mean, there are some times in which you have to defend yourself, for sure, and protect yourself. But people, human beings, are unique creatures, the only ones that are actually made in the image of God. And we should have a great concern and care for people. And it is that great care and concern in which God's people then are called to stand for that which is true, and encourage people and help people and warn them from those things that are false. For those things that will not bring about flourishing, but will bring about failure. That will not bring about life, but will bring about death. It, it, it is a great concern. Pr Solomon put it this way, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I don't think I can say it any better. And that's what this should remind us about. And I know, we, we talked about it in our discipleship group earlier, that we could respond, hopefully, in righteous indignation, but occasionally that might drift over into self-righteous indignation. We have to fight that tension for truth. And one, I think, at least for me, that, that has been helpful is to use moments and times like this to certainly have compassion on those that don't know Christ, for those that are experiencing the wrath of God being revealed. You know what God's wrath being revealed is seen in this time? God allowing you to do those things that will destroy yourself and destroy society. See Romans 1. And because we follow Christ, then we're not going to celebrate those that are destroying themselves and rebelling against God. Instead, we'll call them to repent and believe and, 
and, and receive life instead of death. This is great compassion. I'm thankful that there is some suppression of this evil, some negative responses in our culture today, although it's not much, and it's probably going to be short-lived. But I think what will be long-lived is for us to focus on what's called here by God in Solomon's dedication of the temple, found in Second Chronicles 7.14. I put it on your worship folder, a passage you're probably familiar with. Here God is directing his people, specifically dealing with the temple, but it really shows the character of who God is, and by application certainly would apply to us as well. And if you're doubtful about that application, um, this is a whole other sermon, but you can find this same concept with the pagan people in the time of Nineveh, which judgment was proclaimed unwillingly by God's servant, but yet proclaimed that God would surely bring about judgment. And their response was, who knows? Maybe if we humble ourselves and pray, we've heard about that, that that's who God is, and that's what he's called his people to do. Maybe, Maybe he will forgive our sins. Maybe he will heal our land. In other words, maybe he will bring about a restoration of life. You know what? He will, because he's God. You, you have great good news to proclaim, even in a dark, difficult, and wicked time. But really what's called for in this text, if you look at it, it it's ultimately called, what, what, what do we do? How should we respond? He simply says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, to, to seek my face and turn from their sin, he's going to hear from heaven. He will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a call for God's people to humility, to humble ourselves before Almighty God. And I encourage you this month, as you might see some things and irritate see some things that might bring about great irritation and frustration in your own life maybe just disappointment in the way things are going i encourage you to use that as a catalyst to call you to examine your own heart and to humble yourself before almighty god to, to recognize that he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness he, he will remove every wicked way in your own heart. And he will bring about healing and restoration. And we'll pray for that fruit, not only in our lives, but in the life of our land. I call God's people to commit themselves to pray. It's a good month to do it, with plenty of reminders of why. So I'm going to give you a moment privately where you're at to Humble yourselves and pray and seek God's face privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Take a moment now.
Oh, Father, what a great privilege it is to come before your throne, your throne of grace. The throne of grace that has been granted to us through our mediator, the only one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. One who has walked among us and certainly overturned tables and yet pleaded for mercy on those who really don't know what they're doing. And that is our day as well. May we stand firm on truth. May we have great courage, great conviction, great confidence, not in and of ourselves, but in you. And the truth that you have revealed in your holy word. I pray that it will accomplish what you desire. I don't pray for judgment. I pray for deliverance. I pray, Father, that you will save many. I pray, Father, for, the, for those that tyrannically wish to promote those things that do not bring about life, but instead death. I pray for an end. I pray for an end of the abuse of children, preborn and after birth in their young life. I pray for your church that we would be directed and guided by those things that are right and righteous. And may we, like the Hebrew children, stand, and though no one stand with us. Prepare us, Lord, should we be then accosted, thought evil of, and even arrested in some cases for speaking that which is good when others will then call that evil and hateful. For those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They're blinded. They don't see the truth because they don't see you. And so, Father, I pray that you will miraculously take the proclamation of your truth, not just to suppress evil in the world in which we live, but in our own hearts. May we individually and then corporately as your church humble ourselves before you. Pray. Seek your face. I pray for all of those that might be under this influence of light that they would come to true life in Christ. I pray for every little one within our congregation. Save them all, Lord. Sanctify them all. And secure them all. I pray for us who have weathered many storms. Might we continue to stand firm, recognizing the anchor of Christ that truly holds. May we, at times of weakness, 
discouragement, fear, a failure, or whatever it might be, Father, I pray we would recognize that it isn't our holding on, but Christ's. Christ who has us in his hand and whose hands are in yours. And so give us great peace, even in times of great disturbance. May we truly trust and believe you and find our confidence solely in you. I pray for your blessings, your blessings among your people who you have promised to bless, who you look and call beloved. And I pray that you would use us to bring about many, many more sons and daughters for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your hymn books and let's stand together as we start our worship in song. And let's turn to number 595 and we'll sing for all the saints. Psalm 44 one says, Oh God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days. 595 for all the saints.
We turn to 230, we'll sing the old rugged cross, Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
Boris Acapella. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday Turn to 392. 392. We're marching to Zion. The ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Isaiah 51. Morning, church. I wonder if you could turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 22. In the Pew Bible, it's page 917. The main character in this chapter is Saul of Tarsus, of course, who becomes Paul the great apostle. 
we have been introduced to him already back in chapter 7 in verse 58 where it says, Then the crowd cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 7 verse 58. So it was Saul who was keeping the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen to death. Saul heard Stephen's convicting, convicting sermon, yet he became more zealous in his killing of Christians. He was right there egging on the crowd and consenting to Stephen's death. But what's great about this chapter is that this is Saul's conversion story. This is his salvation story. This becomes his testimony of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles <coughs> and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you in the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. 
For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word we have just read, and we thank you for this man who has impacted all of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for changing our lives in a dramatic way. We thank you for your beloved servant, the Apostle Paul, and how he helped spread the good news of the gospel. Your servant has given us a pattern in real life to follow you. In fact, he has said, follow me as I follow the Lord. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He has, by his words and his testimony, shown us what it is to be convicted by the Spirit and committed to Christ. So we thank you for your servant Paul in this wonderful historical monumental day and his own conversion, the day you laid hold of him and seized him. Each of us, Lord, looks back to the day you laid hold of us and saved us. Like Paul, may we ask you, Lord, what is it you want us to do? How can we fulfill your plan? Oh, Lord, here we are today, and we pray that you would feed us and teach us. More than that, that you would equip us to be vessels, to speak your word, to share your truth and encourage others, to have knowledge, but then, Lord, to act on it. We pray, Lord, for this offering, that you would use it to increase your kingdom. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Let's take our inserts and let's stand together and we'll sing. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We have an anchor in your insert. guys again next week for Father's Day. I have the privilege now to invite you to turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. If you haven't been with us, Hebrews is essentially, as I see it, a proclamation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It comes forward in a sermonic way. I think it is an exemplar of a first century sermon. The emphasis is on the supremacy of Jesus Christ, but particularly rooted in the practical concept of his mediation on our behalf. That is, he is our great high priest. The text of this sermon, I do think, comes from Psalm 110, notably verse 4, where David prophetically proclaims that the Messiah 
is typified by this Melchizedek who met Abram in Genesis 14 when he says about the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This priest is our anchor, as we have sung. Thanks for pulling this selection out. It's done in a poetic way. This hymn beautifully communicates that that idea of our security in Jesus Christ. Specifically, that hymn is based on Hebrews 6.19, which really precedes this section in chapter 7, which provides greater explanation of what Melchizedek typifies in Christ Jesus. 6.19 of Hebrews we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That is Jesus Christ. A hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain. Again, showing that imagery of the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament covenant. Temple had a curtain guarding the most holy place where God was represented to be. It is Christ who has sat down on the majesty on high and has become our steadfast and sure anchor. He's gone ahead, verse 20 in chapter 6, where it says he has gone ahead as a forerunner on our behalf. We're going to get there. If you're in Christ... It is absolutely secure. It is absolutely sure. It is essential for you to know that. In this life, you will suffer much. Some more than others. If you remember in our reading for Brian, Paul at his conversion would be told simply, he is going to suffer for my name. Can I tell you this? If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer. We, we have been very fortunate in our country in days past of not to have received as much persecution or suffering, certainly as our brothers and sisters in other lands. I fear our day is coming. And to prepare for that day, you will need to be rooted in that which is sure and trustworthy. And there is only one. It is Jesus Christ. You must know him now in the good times, in the secure times, to know that you're steadfast and sure. And that this one, this forerunner, is one who is also your mediator between God and man, that which really matters. He becomes a high priest forever, the preacher would say, after the order of Melchizedek, chapter 6 and verse 20. This priest, after the order of Melchizedek, is of a better covenant. And that's where our fo focus will be 
this morning as we review the characteristics. This is the fourth time I've gone through this passage, and we may go through it a few more times. We'll see how it unfolds. But if you're in chapter 7, look down to verse 22. I'll emphasize that, and then I'll give you a conclusion, but I won't be done. So it's just in case I don't get to a conclusion, I can at least say I had one. Notice at the end here, verse 22 of chapter 7, speaking of our great high priest, who is after the order of Melchizedek, this Jesus, this forerunner, this anchor of our soul, is then the guarantor of a better covenant. The audience to which he was preaching had a covenant, but this one's better, and we talked about it last week. This one actually accomplishes what you need. What you need is life. And the new covenant brings about life. The old covenant, not that it was bad, but it brings about death because it only displays what you're doing wrong, your failure to keep it. And those who would twist it and pervert it and assume that, oh, well, I'm doing good enough. No, you're not. You're just redefining. You're twisting. You're lowering the bar. Well, the bar has never moved. It might have moved in your mind. It didn't move in the mind of God. And so all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And to fail at one point is to fail at all. And it brings about death. This new covenant is better because it is God's doing in the heart of the believer speaks about regeneration, bringing death then to life. It is the good news of Jesus Christ, our mediator, necessary, and the only one. I'm going to give you a summary of this section to some degree from a commentary I've really enjoyed reading from A.W. Pink on this section here in Hebrews. And I'll just read it for you because it provides a good summary and a practical application in case I don't quite get there. Pink comments, the abiding of Christ as priest manifests the continuance of his care for his people. The same love which caused him as priest To lay down his life for them remains unchanged within him. That that is a significant statement. Even in the midst of your unfaithfulness, he is always faithful. That's the point. And because of that, Pink goes on and says, Therefore, each one may with the same confidence go unto him with all their concerns. All of them. As poor and afflicted people went to him while he was here upon earth. Again, it is upon the perpetuity of Christ's priesthood that the security of his church rests. And I say amen. Here's the application. Do we meet troubles, trials, difficulties, temptations, and distresses? 
Hath not the church done so in former ages? But was any one true believer ever lost forever? Did not Satan rage and the world gnash their teeth to see the power broken by the faith, patience, and suffering of them whom they hated? And it wasn't from their own wisdom and courage that they were so preserved. Did they overcome the enemy by their own blood or were they delivered by their own power? No. Instead, all their perseverance and success and their deliverance and eternal salvation depended solely on the care and power of their merciful high priest. Amen. Blessed be his name. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. And my response, and I hope yours is too, hallelujah, what a savior, what a surety, and what a priest. That's who we're going to consider in our own minds. Place our thoughts here in the beauty of this passage in which Melchizedek portrays these aspects of the glory of Christ. And the beauty, more than anything, in this message is that this, indeed, this Holy One of God has determined to dwell with his people. And he continually dwells with his people, making intercession on their behalf. We we, we may cry out in the midst of great distress, in great difficulty, in tough times. But never forget that this one is praying for you. Jesus would tell Peter, Satan is going to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you repent, return to your brothers. (laughs) Why would Peter repent at his denial three times? Because Jesus prayed for him. That's the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. This is the great high priest that you have in heaven. He was entered in the inner curtain to the very throne room of God who is an anchor to your soul. Let's read the text that surrounds this, and we'll walk through it the best I can this morning. I'll pick it up at verse 17. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it's witnessed of him, verse 17 of chapter 7, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, as we've said. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Though 
those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's what we're talking about. The former priests, well, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. (coughs) For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for the those of the people. Since he did this once for all, he offered him up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you will give us insight into your word. May, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ. I pray for some that are on the outside looking in that heaven might open up as it did for the Apostle Paul, someone who was rebellious against you, antagonistic against his church, which is Christ's body. I pray that you would forgive. I pray that you would save. I pray for us who will continue to cause us to have great assurance and sanctification in our own life and assurance in you, our hope. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. With the time remains, I'll see what I can accomplish through this text. My objective isn't really to give a great sermon, it is to talk about a great Savior. It's to focus on Christ. And so if we accomplish that, that that's really my purpose here. But in this text, it begins where we left off in verse 20, something I wanted to point out, and that is this certainty or guarantee of this priesthood. If you notice this phrase here in verse 20, it says this covenant, which is better, it's better because it, was, it had an oath. Notice it says the former priest didn't have this oath. So here's something unique about the priesthood of Christ. It's a divine oath. It exalts him above the priesthood under the law. And remember, in their particular circumstances, these Hebrews were thinking about going back to those priests under that system. 
the temple had not yet been destroyed at this time. So they could go back to that, but they would be going back to death and not to life. By the way, anyone who would turn away from the mediation of Jesus Christ is going down that path. Not a path that leads to life. Not a path that leads to light. It's one that leads to death and darkness. And this is why we warn everyone to come and to look to Christ. They had a religious system. They had a system with their own ideas and priests and so forth. And God had given that to them, but all of those were designed to point to this one who has come and fulfilled it, Jesus Christ. He is a priest, it says, that he is one that is forever. Contrary to these Levitical priests who couldn't continue forever. And it's obvious, they they would die. They didn't have the power within themselves to, 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 to rise to life, but Christ does. We, we've mentioned this before. He has an indestructible life. The resurrection was a certainty. It couldn't happen any other way. His Holy One could not see corruption. And so what a beautiful design that God would, would do. There, there is no better way than Christ. No wonder he is the way, the truth and the life, and that no one would come to the Father but through him. There isn't any other way. So where are you going to go? What religious system would you have, even if it's the own idea of the day of your own narcissistic culture? Your own self-will lead to destruction. This statement about an oath, then, that is made in verse 20 was addressed in part before about an oath, and I read that section in in chapter 6. Remember, we were looking at verse 19, but if you want to flip back there and and jump back to verse 16, just to remind yourself, in in the flow of this, he's, he's already talked about this oath, and he brings this oath up one more time, and contrasts it with the Levitical system that did not have this oath. And by the way, no other religious system, no other ideology, you know, if you don't even think atheism is a religion, which I do, religion of self, Satanism is a religion of self, I will, I will be the master of my own domain. Guess what none of them have? An oath. This is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the high priest, who has this oath. If you're in chapter 6, you can look back, and it talks about confirmation. They would would swear, that's the idea of an oath. They swear by something greater, verse 16 of chapter 6. And in some disputes... The oath is, a fi- is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, and that's the purpose of it, convincingly to who? To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, which, by the way, God couldn't change. You understand that. That's why he can't lie. There's some things God can't do. 
Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He can't change because what would he change to? Something better, something worse? He's God. But we don't always recognize that and understand it. So in his condescension to us, he will give us this oath. He guaranteed it then with an oath, verse 17. So now you have two unchangeable things, verse 18. It's impossible for God to lie, and you have this oath. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus Christ, who secures it, and he is indeed the forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. The oath is simply a guarantee. He gives it, he says, to his people as a confirmation, if you will. It's given, verse 17 of chapter 6, do you notice here? It's to show more convincingly. Already convinced, but now here's more. And who does it go to? It goes to the heirs of the promise. That is, this oath really is given to the believers. This guarantee is given to the believers. If you're not in Christ, this oath isn't for you. This is for those that are in Christ. And I argued before, and I still argue now. You can argue with me if you wish. (laughs) But this guarantee, what, what, what is given to the believers? that makes God's promise more secure? What, what could possibly make it more secure than the fact that he said it? Whether you believe it or not, he said it, it's true. But he does something on behalf of the believers. I'm convinced that guarantee specifically is the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee that God does keep his pledge. And the only reason you come to life in Christ is through this power of the Holy Spirit that illuminates your heart, that you can see that it's true. And the only reason you hang on to it and it's true is because of this dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. He works in the heart of the believer and tells us that we're sons of God. You ever been in a tough place where you were doubting and you're wondering? And I know part of this has to do with spiritual maturity, for sure. But the older you get and the longer you spend in the Word, the more you recognize this personal relationship you have with God and the security that this communion, that Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin and will not allow you to remain in it, but will cause you then to to confess even when no one else knows. This communion with God through the Holy Spirit to the believers that communicates, yes, you indeed are a son and daughter of the promise. God can only swear by himself. There's none higher. So his guarantee has to be himself. His guarantee would be the sworn promise of the Holy Spirit, this, this pledge of assurance. 
I'll just read a couple passages for you. You don't have to turn. I'll just read them for you. And you're hearing some that you're no doubt familiar with. Here's one from 2 Corinthians 1.22. He has also put his seal on us, that's the guarantee, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's how you can be guaranteed of your salvation. That is the oath of the promise. It is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, similar. He's prepared us for this very thing, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This beautiful passage in Ephesians that talks about those that are in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world. It sums it up this way in 1.14, Ephesians, speaking about the Holy Spirit. He says, He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's the oath, beloved. This guarantee that you have is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. You know, he doesn't have to do that. He just says whatever he says, and it's true. But God does a second thing for the believer, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Who Jesus said to his disciples, when I go, I, I know that you're going to be discouraged. You, you'll face many times of trials and suffering, but I will be with you until the end of the age. When you preach the gospel over in Scotland, remember Jesus Christ said he'd be with you until the end of the age. So how is he going to be with you? He's on the majesty on high because he has given the Holy Spirit who would secure and seal a guarantor of your possession. MacArthur puts it this way in his brief comment, Bible study, God's own spirit comes to indwell the believer and secures and preserves his eternal salvation. The sealing of which Paul refers to, which, I'm sorry, the sealing of which Paul speaks refers to an official mark of identification placed on a letter contract or other document. I think that's a good way to think about it. The document was thereby officially under the authority of the person whose stamp was on the seal. This sealing or this guarantee should bring about thoughts of eternal security in our great high priest. It should bring about a thought of authenticity. There, there are other promises that are not real, genuine, authentic. This promise is of ownership in that seal and that is owned indeed by God and also authority. As Christ promises disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now you go. You, you go in the authority of Christ. That's the authority we go. Not in our own authority, but we have the authority of Jesus Christ sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
a pledge, if you will, of the believer's future inheritance, a seal as a guarantee for that. The Lord will not change his mind. Jesus Christ is a priest forever. The second thing, back in our text in chapter 7, I want to draw your attention to is this idea of which we've already mentioned it and um, it's just in the wording here but I'll go on and add one other aspect here but if you look at 23 of chapter 7 it talks about once again this continuing office the former priest had to end because of death. And beloved, that's the greatest enemy you're going to face. Those priests or any others do not have the power of life. There's only one. It is Jesus Christ. This Melchizedek represents that, and you can find that if you remember in chapter 7 and verse 3. He didn't have a father, didn't have the genealogy, beginning of days or end. It's saying that they didn't know about any of that. And so as far as they knew about Melchizedek, they don't know where he came from. They don't know where he went to. It illustrates, that's the whole point of Melchizedek. It illustrates the eternality of Jesus Christ. And it says, if if you're in chapter 7, you go back and look at verse 3. It says, he resembles the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever that's the point Melchizedek's priesthood resembled if you will the superiority of Christ's priesthood who doesn't have limitations he continues forever and then verse 24 of our text he holds his priesthood then permanently A forever priest. And I think I've mentioned this before. We need a forever priest. And I repeat it again just because I'm aware of some folks who think salvation this way. Oh, I made a decision for Christ. I repented and believed. And now I'm off to do my own thing. You've missed it by a mile. You will need that continual mediation all of your life. How will you be cleansed from your unrighteousness if you didn't have a faithful high priest who is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? That category doesn't exist. And I know a lot of parents that are concerned about their kids, siblings, loved ones, friends, that base a lot of what they think about their relationship with God on the fact that they somehow made a decision, they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, whatever it is. All of that's important. All of that's good. But you know what's really necessary? is to have a forever priest, to be in continuous communion with Christ.
Christ. It gives somebody a false hope of assurance. They have no communion with Christ. They're not regularly repenting of their sin. They're not challenged by the Holy Spirit who dwells within them, convicting them. They don't, they don't categorize their life and lifestyle as that which is in rebellion against God. Now, they may slip and fall, and but it is the power of the Holy Spirit that will work on their behalf and bring them to confession and continuance of faith. Jesus continues this mediatorial work and granting peace then in the heart of the believer who is continually reminded of the fact that your sins have been washed away whiter than snow. It is in eternity that Jesus will continue to mediate on the behalf of his people. There will be no sin. That'll be done away with. This last enemy death, it'll be done away with as well. But our communion with Christ, it will continue. It will continue forever because it is our only connection to God, you understand? It is through this one, Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And so he continues in that, in that office, if you will, for eternity. It says he holds it permanently. He is a high priest forever. And because of that, because of his continuance, because he holds this office forever, look at verse 25. And I want you to look at this word, uttermost. So that's his point. That's the point of the continuation of Christ's ministry for eternity. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's my point. It isn't temporal. It's eternal. It's permanent. It's a forever priesthood. And what is so great about that? Well, he saves to the uttermost. The phrase uttermost, translated here, conveys the idea of completeness, perfection. You remember, this is a high priest who doesn't make mistakes. And he doesn't save partially. He saves perfectly. And that's the only way in which he mediates. The priesthood of Christ, Jonathan Edwards would say, is perpetual and unalterable. Sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save us completely, and his priesthood will never cease. R.C. Sproul. Priesthood of Jesus is an everlasting priesthood that will never be replaced. He's replacing the Levitical system. His system will never be replaced. What, what would it be replaced with? There are other religious systems that come along and say, well, now we've got this. Now, now we have some new word from the Lord. 
And whether it's the Muslims, or whether it's the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons, they don't have a new word. His word will never be replaced. His work on the cross, Sproul would say, is eternally efficacious. And his intercession on behalf of his people is continual. We can have a confidence then in his ability to save to the uttermost. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to walk through this and see what I can accomplish here. I invite you to go ahead and turn. Colossians chapter 1. And here it talks about the work of Christ, our mediator, and what he's done for his people. You can drop down to verse 13, and it says it rather succinctly. Here's what he's done. This is our mediator. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. There was a point in which all of us lived in the domain of darkness, if you will. Sin, sons of the devil. And this is God's work through Jesus Christ, is then to take us out of the darkness, that domain of darkness, and transfer us, if you will, to the domain of light. The domain of death to the domain of life, to the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the Son. That's redemption. That's the buying back. That's the response to the rebellion that we display in our own darkness, in our own death, in our own self-will in following Satan, the father of lies. Christ redeems us and forgives us of our sins. Well, who is that Christ? If you're in Colossians 1, it explains. And this is, you've heard this also in Hebrews, I hope, at the very beginning. It, it talks about the nature and character of Christ. Well, here it's repeated again to this church of Colossians. Who, who is this one? This beloved son? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn here refers to the, the, uh, the first in rank or order. Not in a, as a created being, but he is the supreme being. And it'll explain this for you, even if you don't know the original language and are confused by that phraseology because it explains it in verse 16 why is this one who is god considered the primary of all creation why verse 16 for by him all things were created it is christ who has created all it is christ who has created you and whether you believe him or don't believe him whether you obey him or disobey him it doesn't matter christ
created all. And to go on, it explains, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Anything you see redounds to the glory of God and specifically to Jesus Christ because he made it all. Why did he do it? The text tells you. You see that last phrase? For him. For his own glory. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> Again, this, this is the same concept that is put, put out about the nature of Jesus Christ in this proclamation in Hebrews. He, he's before all things. Be, what, what, how would you be before all things? Because you're eternal. And you made all things. So he's everlasting. And beyond that, when he makes all things, it isn't that he makes all things and makes a bunch of rules up by which those things are going to operate and just allows it to, by happen chance, to, stance, to just go on about its way. No, he's engaged in it, and it is him holding all things together. No wonder we should humble ourselves and pray, <laughs> right? I, I mean, even if you're really concerned about alien life that some people are concerned about, or about global warming, or whatever else they want to call it, climate change now, I guess it is, sorry. They'll come up with a different term. I understand why they're panicking, and, and well, they should. Because you can't hold it all together. But Christ can. Go to him. Whether it's something in your own little personal life, whether it's your career, your job, your relationships, whether it's the world in which you live, he holds it all together. He's the mediator. He is the high priest, not just at the time you, you confess your, your, and, and, and come to Christ as your salvation. He's your high priest. He's your mediator all the time. No wonder the apostle said to pray always. Who are you praying to? God, through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So who is this one? Well, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the church. He's the one to whom we submit to. He's the one I submit to. The elders are not the head of the church. We're just appointed servants and stewards of his church. It's a great privilege. But it's to Christ we all submit because it is him that holds all things together. It is him that accomplishes it all. And what a beautiful thing, and we don't do so in perfection, but just to preach Christ and allow him to do work in the hearts of people without having to twist their arm or hit him in the head. We'll let the Holy Spirit do it. Who is this Christ? He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. He's talking now about the resurrection and that all in Christ will rise again 
and that in everything, and here's the same emphasis, that he might be preeminent. This is why the first is mentioned in verse 15, and why the first is mentioned here in verse 18. It is so that Christ would be first in our thoughts. It is in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And what does he do then in his work? Who does this, what does this preeminent one do? Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He will reconcile all. He is a ruler. And this is why we call all to repent and believe, because every tribe, every nation, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either in their redemption or in their judgment, because he is sovereign God. Whether in earth or in heaven, that is material or immaterial, all are submissive to Christ, and he brings about that peace. He says, verse 20, notice the peace. The peace is the restoration, the reconciliation, if you will, by the blood of his cross in that he atoned for the sins of his people and therefore can allow them to draw near to God. And he makes a point of that in verse 21. You who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's a description of those that were in the domain of darkness. That's who we all once were. That's how we all once walked as a characteristic of our life. Alienated, if you will, from God. Having a hostile mind and actually doing evil deeds, that is, deeds that do not conform to God and Christ. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And for what purpose? To present you, here it is, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing Savior. What a great high priest. This is his mediatorial work in which he accomplishes through the blood on the cross. And you know what he calls us to do then, beloved? I'm going to talk about, say for next week, this holy aspect of his priesthood. That's in verse 26 of chapter 7. You can read ahead. He gives um, five descriptives of Christ, so we'll save that for next time. But here in this text, it, it tells you how to respond. It, the it, this is what Christ does if indeed, verse 23, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. He's calling you to continue in faith that is belief, stable, and steadfast. It's how you examine your the the point on that is simply to examine your own heart. It isn't the fact that you're 
you, you try really hard to believe, try really hard to be stable, try really hard to be steadfast and not shifting away from the hope. It is, if, if you're not, that's evidence you don't have this oath of the Holy Spirit given to your heart. If you did, you, you would continue. I mean, you might find some rocky roads along the way, but there will be stability. A steadfast, and your determination will be on Christ and Christ alone. John was put it this way. They went out from us because they weren't of us. And they did so to demonstrate that very thing. So, so this is not something for me to sit there and measure you by. This is something for you to measure yourself by. It's a call to look to Christ. It is is a call to look to Christ who is our continual high priest who has given us a guarantee of that very promise through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you for deliverance from the domain of darkness into this incredible kingdom of the Son. I pray we would always be overwhelmed by this truth. The redemption that we have in Christ, the forgiveness of sin. I pray that we would continually call others to repent and believe. To flourish the way you have designed. But may our work not be done in our own strength. But in the strength that you supply through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for your people, Father, that you would give them great faith, great stability in their life, a steadfastness, and assurance of the hope of the gospel in Christ our Lord. And then may they also proclaim that to all creation. I pray in Christ's name. Take a moment privately where you're at to respond to Christ, your mediator, the way he has spoken to you today. Father, we thank you and praise you for the steadfast anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ, a hope that has entered into the inner place behind the curtain, who is seated on the majesty on high. May all glory and praise go to Christ. Grant us assurance of that hope through the power of your spirit. And may we be prompted to proclaim this gospel to all nations. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's all stand and turn to 514 in our hymnals. 514, Be Still My Soul. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence, the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. (laughs) 